If you didn't know it, the book of Psalms, that half the book is a collection of laments. Laments are quite simply complaints. That half a book of a Bible is a complaint. Complaints to God about what is going on in the world, what is going on through people, what God is doing, what God is not doing, people struggling, psalmists declaring, God, things aren't going the way I thought they would go. And the Psalms have a pattern. That generally there's a declaration, either, either a lament or a thanksgiving or a praise. And if it's a lament, a reminder of what the psalmist needs to do, an expression of what is going on inside of them. And there's usually some indication that the psalmist is cognizant that in the past that God has done great things and that God will do great things. And usually the end of a psalm finishes with hope or finishes in the belief that God will act. Psalm 77 is such a psalm that we reflect on today. Verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 20. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will remember, I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph, the patriarchs. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. The path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. O God, just as you led your people through the waters to divide the Red Sea for your people to be freed from slavery in Egypt, led by Moses and Aaron, God, may you guide us navigating the waters of life, that you may open our ears to hear your word, open our minds so that we can understand and apply it, and open up our hearts to receive your graceful love. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're ever in a point in your life when you think that things have changed, that things aren't going as planned, that you have to make a decision that you'd rather not make, I want you to remember the name Jennifer Figgy. 
Jennifer Figge set out to become the first woman to swim completely across the Atlantic Ocean. After being a long-distance runner, Figge decided to take on a new challenge in her life. And she decided to take this monumental task, not when many Olympic athletes train as a teenager. No, when she took on this task, she was not in her teens or her 20s or even her 40s, but at 56 years of age, she started. She started to swim across the Atlantic from Africa to the Americas. And as she planned each day of her journey, she would have to eat over 8,000 calories just to have enough energy to be able to swim six to eight hours a day. Wouldn't we all love to just eat some 8,000 calories a day just to go? Boy, that would be good. But she would have to battle the sea. She would have to battle jellyfish, exhaustion, Mother Nature. And her trip as she began, it was a 3,000-mile journey from Africa to the Bahamas. But something went wrong. She hit a storm, 25-mile-per-hour winds, 30-foot waves, forced her to swim 1,000 additional miles away to avoid the storm. And one of her crew assisting in the swim said, basically, the storm changed anything. Like anyone who is trying to accomplish a goal, she had to make changes. Think about it. If your plan was to go 3,000 miles and someone told you, well, just kidding, it's going to be 4,000 miles, would you keep going? If you never thought about life in this way today, I want you to think about the way in which we live life is a lot like a marathon swim. There are times when we work, there are times when we eat, there are times when we rest, there are times that we reflect, there are times that we all have to make the necessary changes in your life and in my life in order to reach our final destination. And yes, seasons in our life sometimes take longer than anticipated. There are unplanned events that happen, decisions that have to be made that we'd probably not make. We are taken to unexpected places, and sometimes we have to go on a detour. I wonder if the writer of Psalm 77 was a swimmer, or at least spent time on a boat, because it seems that this writer is making a strong connection, a strong correlation between what is going on in their life and what happens on the water. There are storms, there are convulsions, trembling, pouring out, and distress in this psalm. The psalmist cries out, seeks God, stretches out their hands, seeking comfort, and at the beginning says, they have not found it. It's what I love about the psalms. They're so real. It speaks into our human condition. It, spe it speaks into who you are and who I am and what we all go through. What was going on a thousand years happens to us today. God, where are you? If you think that the Bible is a lot about prescriptions 
meaning a bunch of do's and don'ts, thou shall and thou shall not. If you think the Bible is prescriptive, remember that the Bible is also descriptive. It tells the story of God's people trying to navigate the waters of life through the ups and the downs. It describes all that life that we go through, the celebrations, the highs, the lows, the in-between times. There is some event, trauma, something done, or something left undone in this psalmist's life. And they're articulating that this trauma or this experience has left them down to nothing. They are at the bottom of their barrel. And down there, they're not finding God. I think all of us at some point in our life, maybe we've come to believe a temptation to believe two extremes. That for some of us, when we are met with some trauma, some experience, something that's gone on in our life, that there's a tendency to think, number one, I have to pull up myself by my bootstraps. Buck up. Stiff upper lip, as the British say. I, can, I have the power to turn the world upside down. I am totally in control of everything that is going on. Or maybe you're tempted to believe the other extreme. I have no power to change my life. There's nothing I can do, nothing I can say. There are too many things in my life. The forces are too great. There's no reason. There's no reason why I should attempt to try to change or address the problems in my life. It's all just fate. I think either of these extremes, modes of being, are unhelpful and not totally true. But what if both extremes are trying to address something that's partially true. When I was about nine or ten years old, my father and I, we went out for an errand on a winter day. And as we drove in our 1980s Dodge Caravan, we stopped at a four-way stop atop of a hill. And it was a wintry day. And even though that it was cloudy, that it had just snowed and the roads were clear, My father started through that four-way stop, and as we drove down the hill of that four-way stop, we hit a patch of black ice in our minivan. And this part of the hill was about three football fields long, and my dad did his best to apply the brake and gain control of the car, but it was clear after several seconds of sliding all the way down this hill with the brakes engaged we were going to come at the bottom of the hill at another four-way stop where traffic was crisscrossing. And when you're on black ice, there's not much you can do, as we know here in Syracuse. And as a child, I had a moment of fear, a slight moment of panic, because I was in a vehicle that was out of control. I'd never been in a situation like this before. I was helpless at the forces of nature and gravity at work. And this was before things like analog brakes, Airbags, crumple zones, and all the technology that keeps us safe in our vehicles. So as we got closer and closer to the bottom of that hill, still sliding all the way down, three football fields down, I could see the traffic was coming and going, stopping and starting, and we were heading straight into an accident, sliding down that hill. We were heading into certain tragedy. 
However, miraculously, my father was able to turn the steering wheel so that our minivan, instead of sliding down front ways, we started to slide around backwards into the intersection. And as my dad completed this maneuver, he kind of put my hand on on my shoulder and he said, Alan, hold on. And when my dad put his hand on my shoulder, even though we were out of control, I felt like my dad was helping me prepare for the worst. Whatever was going to happen, in that moment I felt reassured that I was not alone. My dad was with me. So as we came to that intersection, sliding down backwards, people could see that something was obviously wrong, because here comes this Dodge Caravan sliding backwards, right through this intersection. Thank God all the traffic stopped, and we slid right through, unscathed. We averted disaster. Now, you may not think it's a smart thing to do, to slide downhill backwards in a vehicle on black ice. But in doing so, my father explained to me that by maneuvering the minivan with the back heading down the hill, that if we got hit, most likely we would get hit in the rear where there was no one. And that where we were was safer to put the back of the car first sliding down out of control. Psychologists call this type of thought and action the understanding of the forces that are working against us that we have no control over and the choices that are before us as a locus of control. Meaning that there are some external forces that are beyond our control. However, there's an internal locus of control. Which means that anything happening to us in this very moment, whether you're sliding down a hill or your life is falling apart, that there's a moment and there are options that we can engage in. Bessel van der Kook, author of The Body Keeps Score, tells us that agency, the ability for us to act on our own, starts with our awareness of our sensory body feelings. Knowing what we feel is the first step in knowing why we feel. If we are aware of the constant changes in our inner and outer environment, we can mobilize to change them. We may not be able to have complete control over those external forces in our lives, but God has given us the agency and the ability to start a new course and change and setbacks. My dad was not able to change Newtonian physics, but he had an option in front of him. Head right into danger or approach danger in the most cautious way possible. And navigating the waters of life, approaching danger in the most cautious way possible is ideal. The reality for the psalmist is that they're ex- facing an external force, something that they cannot control. And in turn, they look to God to help them navigate those murky waters of life. So what does the psalmist do? 
Well, I think sometimes when we're facing so many external forces that we do not have control over, we do have some options. And I think as followers of Christ, we need to go back to the basics. That's what the psalmist does. Goes back to what the psalmist knows. The psalmist prays. And today I want to give you an acronym that's very easy because it's the word pray. That first praise is easy. That when you face those external forces in life, when you seem like your life and those limited options are before you, the first P is to pray. Pray for God to intervene. So after you begin, like the psalmist, that prayerful life seeking God, that that R is to respond. That we take action to address our situations. We get other people involved, our mentors, our friends, our pastors, our Stephen ministers, our therapists, maybe our doctor, to respond, to say, hey, these external forces at work are too great. I need help. So in pray, we respond. A, we accept. We accept that there are things in your control and my control. We accept that there are forces at work in the murky waters of life. We accept that God is presenting a new pathway forward. We accept the reality. And finally, why? Yield. That sometimes when facing danger, when facing those murky waters of life, the ups and downs, we must yield to God. God helps us change course in the waters. We may have to go that extra thousand miles that we didn't plan on going, but we have to yield to how God is opening a new door. And that's what the psalmist does. The psalmist remembers the past, that God, the psalmist reads the scripture and knows that God never abandoned his people, that even through the way out of Egypt, the psalmist remembers that God did not redeem Israel from the troubled waters. God redeemed Israel amid the troubled waters. That the God that created the heavens, the earth, is still the God that's in control. Max Lucado, in his book, Fearless, reminds us how God shapes our journeys, that he uses John 14 as our realization of how God works in the midst of those external and internal locus of control. He writes this, your journey in the company of the Holy Spirit, and here is where he introduces John 14, will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. And I really like this. Lucado says, so make friends with what is next. Embrace it. Accept it. Don't resist it. Change is not only a part of life. Change is a necessary part in God's strategy. To use us to change the world, He alters our assignments. Today, in addition to being Father's Day and 
honoring graduates, we remember that today is Juneteenth. Juneteenth commemorates the emancipation of slaves and ending slavery in our country. And we know that that was a dark period for our nation. And it took over another 100 years for that to become a true reality in our country. John Newton was a slave trader and a ship captain who profited awful off of the evils of slavery. And despite having a religious upbringing from his mother, he bought, he sold, he ferried slaves from Africa to the Americas. And as his turbulent life changed, he found himself sold into slavery. And despite his time as a slave, he becomes a victim of the slave trade and is a slave on a plantation. Later, he's freed, and he doesn't learn his lesson in life, and he goes back to the slave trade until a storm ravages his ship in the Atlantic Ocean. And he nearly escaped with his life. Sometime later, he fell ill, started to think about his life, started to think about those external forces, those inner forces, that locus of control. And he later wrote this, What a poor creature I am in myself, incapable of standing a single hour without continual fresh supplies of strength, of grace from God. John Newton, in that moment, leaves his life of slavery, and he turns to his life over God completely. And that life he lived, actively involved in the slave trade, he begins fighting the evils of slavery. And he even changes professions. He goes from being a boat captain to being a surveyor. And he was able to petition the Church of England to become a minister. And his life led him to write the lyrics of Amazing Grace. The lyrics of that story is his story of Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. The great theologian Hans Kung once said, God's love does not protect us from suffering. Rather, God's love protects us in the midst of suffering. I know today there's people in this congregation, people watching online that are facing some pretty big life questions. Uncertain, turbulent waters in their marriages, in their families, their employment, facing troubles in their neighborhood. People right now I know that are facing the worst of life. And when we meet those moments, we have to engage in the prayer. Prayer to pray, to pray, to respond, to be able to act 
and yield to God. As you pray, remember, in the time of suffering, of change, of trouble that's going on in your life, there is always a beginning to our troubles, there's always a middle, and there's always an end. And at that end, God is always there and has always been there, seen and unseen that God is not working against you. God is working for you to help you navigate and redeem the things that we have done, the things that have been done to us. That in the end, God's grace will lead you home, but not the way that you started from home. Most likely, you'll take a different journey, an exit, an unexpected pathway. And by that way, God leads you home. If the Father brought the Son through suffering, death, and resurrection, God will resurrect your suffering, your trauma, and pain, and transform it into a path of life. And as you face what you're facing in your life, remember that when we're down into the barrel of life, and we're down to the bottom, when we're down to nothing, God is up to something. Let us pray. God, we want so much to expect you as that divine personal power in our life to intervene. And like the psalmist expressed that, Lord, we know there are times when we cry out. We demand attention. We demand action. But God, in your way, you know the journey home is not the way we expect. But the journey home to your grace and love is always by another way. So God, as we take that other way this week, may you lift us up. May you fill us with strength and grace to face whatever we're facing, to face whatever we will face. And Lord, to know that you are with us on that journey through the murky waters of life, navigating, finding a way, we return back to you. Lord, bless us this week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.